intervening days, uh, seems like our nation is plunged into turmoil again because of police shootings in Louisiana and Minnesota, and of course, uh, those protecting peaceful protesters in Dallas were gunned down and five officers were killed and others were wounded. And uh, it is a tough time for us <coughs> as a country. And uh, all three scenarios, however you look at those things, uh, had tragic results, uh, senseless loss of life, and it's difficult to know how to respond. <laughs> and I've really claimed James 119 this week and have tried very hard to live by it. James writes, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteous life that God desires. And... Uh, as believers, we want to respond as honoring our Lord Jesus Christ and that it helps others who need to know Jesus Christ to meet him, know him, and follow him. We need to remember, no matter our personal political views or our personal agendas, that ultimately it is only Jesus Christ's agenda that means anything and is of eternal value. And we need to be reminded that Scripture is very clear on how Christians should respond in times of crisis. It is always incredible for me when I read Romans chapter 13 to realize that the Apostle Paul wrote under the oppression of the Roman Empire and the emperor was Nero, who was famed for burning Christians at the stake and famed for having Christians killed in the uh, games of Rome. And that's when Paul wrote about uh, honoring uh, those who lead us and also to submit to government. Uh, yet the Apostle Paul gives us instructions, even in the midst of great adversity that he lived in. The government was corrupt, the laws were unfair, Christians were persecuted. Basically, the society of the then-known world was broken. Consider the words out of Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think at times like this, every believer should be reminded that we can be greatly disappointed in our current circumstances as a nation, and yet it's not a license for unrighteous action. And I just want to remind you of that. Human government is fallible, society has fallen, and life is not fair. <laughs> Therefore, we should be careful not to put all of our hope in government, getting it right, not that we shouldn't work for the improvement of our governmental system, but we are not to take matters into our own hands. We are to work to resolve differences with patience, righteousness and faith, and yet regardless of whether or not the issues are fully resolved, revenge is not an option, even in our own thinking and discussions. We are challenged to put hope in God and point people to Jesus Christ. In the second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. It certainly is as uh, time to pray, but as believers, we should always be praying for our nation, for those who are leading our nation, uh, for those who have suffered great loss in these past few days. And uh, we are to go to the only one who has the power to really intervene and demolish these strongholds of real change. And we pray that God would comfort the families of those who've lost their lives this week. And as the protests are ongoing, uh, may we also recognize that there needs to be healing in our land. One of the interesting concepts in Scripture is the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, <coughs> in uh, the book of Acts was sent to indwell every believer. The Holy Spirit is called the Comforter, and uh, he's the one that draws alongside of us. He indwells us to empower us for works of goodness. And later on in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Restrainer. And when the Restrainer in the book of Revelations is taken out of the world, then all hell breaks loose. And I don't know if you've ever considered the fact that by the Holy Spirit indwelling you, indwelling believers, that he is using us to restrain evil. Uh, and then when we are captured out of the church in the rapture, out of the world in the rapture as the church leaves, the restrainer is removed, and then the Antichrist has his way. And so it's interesting, as I thought about this week, that we are called to be peacemakers we are called to be those who call others to righteousness and to demonstrate and uh, to model what it means to live a righteous life, a Christian life. And I think the beginning part I know in my life is pray that God would change me first uh, because there's lots to be upset about. But as we model the gospel, we can show what difference the gospel makes in our lives that we're not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. You know, that is the whole issue, the problem of evil in our world. And this is the problem that the little prophet Habakkuk, the minor prophet Habakkuk, the book we are studying this summer, is facing, is the fact that age-old question, it is probably the, the fundamental objection to the gospel, is that if God is all good, he must not be all-powerful. Because if he was all-powerful, he would stop evil. He would stop it in its tracks. Therefore, if he doesn't stop it, even though he's all-loving and all-good, uh, either that or, or he, he's just not active, and that is an objection. Most people will point to the problem of evil and suffering as their reason for not believing in God than any, uh, any other. It's a problem. It is the problem as we interact with unbelieving people of people, our friends or our family, our co-workers, our classmates. The problem of evil is the fundamental barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Barna's group uh, did a poll and asked this question. If you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? Unquote. The most common response that they found in their responses was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And this certainly takes us to Habakkuk as he faces the pain and suffering of his nation. And he is struggling in distress and if this dilemma. John R. W. Stott, the great British theologian, said, and I quote him, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith 
and has been so in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if, if, if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love, unquote. Richard Swineberg, another uh, commentator, wrote in the Oxford Companion to Philosophy, says the problem of evil is, quote, the most powerful objection to traditional theism or to Christianity, unquote. Ronald Nash writes, objections to theism come and go, but every philosopher I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. Randy Alcorn, in writing uh, in his book, said, if you will not get far in a conversation with someone who rejects the Christian faith before the problem of evil is surfaced, is raised, pulled out like the ultimate trump card, it's supposed to silence believers and prove that the all-good and all-powerful God of the Bible does not exist. And that's what we face in events like we've experienced this past week uh, just kind of solidify that position in many people's minds and perhaps even in Christian minds because you're in a good place if you are asking hard questions of God because Habakkuk, the prophet, asked very difficult questions. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he basically is asking three questions. God, why don't you hear me? God, why don't you help us? God, why do you tolerate sin and violence and wrong? These are the fundamental issues that Habakkuk is dealing with. And he has this interchange with God in this little short book. In my Bible, it's like two and a half pages long. But such a powerful uh, book about who and what God is and about God's ways. And we're going to look today at the passage that Stephen read for us. But before we do, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the very fact that you are the Almighty God that no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter if the mountains fall into the sea, you are still God, and you are almighty, and your ways are not our ways, and yet, Lord, you are working all things out for your honor and glory and for the good of your people throughout all of the ages. I thank you that you're here with us today, Lord. I thank you for each person here. Thank you for our children uh, downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister to them we thank you for this day of life, and Lord, we think today of our nation, and we pray for our nation. We pray for those in leadership that this would not become a bipartisan debate or debate on other issues, but Lord, that we would be a humbled people and that we would seek your ways and your will and that you would be honored and glorified. You have blessed us so mightily, and Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that we hold copies of your word in our own language, in our hands. Thank you for the freedom to gather here today. And we thank you, Lord, that you are at work, even though we may not be able to see it. Lord, we thank you uh, for blessing us with this passage of Scripture. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that there are just great difficulties in life and some that will not get an answer in this lifetime. But yet, Lord, give us great hope and faith in you because you are the good and almighty God. We pray this morning for those families who've lost loved ones this last week. We pray for the law enforcement agencies uh, around our country, as I'm sure policemen and law enforcement individuals are feeling like they have targets on them. And Lord, we do pray that uh, you would uh, just quell the violence that we have seen. Thank you that you are with us here this morning. We pray that each one of us would be responsive to your word for us today. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.
Well, Habakkuk in this book, if you've been reading it and following along with us, uh, he is asking some fundamental questions, if I've, I've said, and, and he looks at his native Judah. Uh, he's writing in about 607 B.C. The northern ten tribes, known as Israel, the kingdom have already gone into captivity. Assyria has carried them away in 722, and now it is about 607. The Babylonians are threatening. The Babylonians are the new superpower of the world. They have defeated Assyria, put them out of commission. They have just uh, defeated uh, Pharaoh Necho II in Egypt, and Egypt, <coughs> being a quite great power, was subdued by the Babylonians, and here they come. And Habakkuk uh, is asking God, uh, why don't you hear my prayer? I look around, and all of Judah is in spiritual decline. The people are sinning against you. There's violence. And he's talking about his own people, about uh, the people of Judah, about the, the Jewish people. And he is a prophet sent by God, and he is there to proclaim to them what God has to say. But in this book, it's interesting, Habakkuk uh, initially speaks to God about the people. Usually a prophet speaks to the people about God, which he will do as he records this for us. But primarily, he's in a dialogue with God here. And it tells us there in verse 1 that it's a vision, that this is a vision, an oracle, or a burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And so this is a way of God communicating to his man, the prophet Habakkuk, and uh, he is communicating to him. But Habakkuk looks around and sees the violence and the injustice on every hand, and he cries out these perplexing questions to God. Why are the wicked prospering in the midst of God's people? Why are the righteous beaten down? Why is God seemingly inactive and indifferent in the day of wickedness? Uh, we have looked at, does God care, last week, and we've seen that God does care. He is working out his ultimate plan. And today we look, is God fair? Is God really fair in his dealing with us, with the people of Judah, uh, 2000, over 2,000 years ago, 2,600 years ago? Uh, is God really fair? Because sometimes life certainly does not seem fair. And if we were in the place of losing loved ones or something this past week, uh, we would sometimes reflect on that. Is God really fair? Habakkuk wasn't questioning God's right to judge sin. Habakkuk was a righteous man. He was questioning God's method. When he asked those questions and God reveals to them, I'm going to send the Chaldeans down, the Babylonians, to discipline Judah. Remember, clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it begins the highways of prophecy where God told the Israelite people that if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And we see this, this, uh, this cycle of disobedience throughout Israel's history, and each time he sends something to discipline them. And here at this time in 607 B.C., the Babylonians are the instrument of discipline for the people of Judah. And this creates a great dilemma for Habakkuk because he has some very serious questions about this. How can you send a very evil people that are more evil than we are to discipline us? And he asks these questions. But there is a dilemma of God's ways in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. The prophet is astonished, just as God said he would be in chapter 1, verse 5. He was appalled that God would employ an evil instrument to discipline Judah. Habakkuk was expressing his deep concern. He questioned God's plan in all of this. Perhaps you're in a place today where you are questioning God's plan. It's pretty fuzzy to you because we don't know what tomorrow holds or next week or next year. 
and yet sometimes life's adversities come down upon us, the difficulties, the struggles, and we question, God, you really know what you're doing here. And that's the dilemma of how God is working. I'm convinced that we as, of course, we are, are trapped in time, essentially, and we're trapped in our lifespan, and yet God is working out his plan throughout all of the centuries, throughout all of the eons, and this plan is not completed yet. It is still in uh, process there. But the dilemma of God's ways in verses 12 through 17, we need to know God's ways. Moses once prayed in Exodus chapter 33, show me now your ways that I may know you. What a great prayer. That is a good prayer to pray. And God answered, the psalmist in Psalm 103, 7 said that God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Notice the difference, ways and acts. Many people, like the Israelites at the time of the Exodus, are only interested in the acts of God. God, please relieve me from this. Please provide this for me. Uh, please heal me. Do this kind of stuff. But the ones who want an answer to the problem of suffering must get behind and beyond the acts of God, as Moses did, and discern his ways. And this is what Habakkuk is doing right now. He asked the question in verses 12 through 13, why would you, O God, employ a people of iniquity? Look at verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Can you get the sense of his dilemma here? He's trying to understand God's ways. But if we look closely at verses 12 through 13 of what Habakkuk has just written, what he has just said, he talked about, God, you are eternal. That first question is more of a statement in the Hebrew language. Are you not from everlasting? He's not asking a question. He knows the answer. Yes, God is everlasting. God is eternal. And so that is a character trait that we need to grasp onto. God is eternal, and he is the everlasting one. Secondly, he is holy. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. Holiness is complete otherness. It is complete perfection. There is nothing sinful about God and what he does. Thirdly, he is sovereign. You have appointed them for judgment. God is sovereign in it. He is mighty. You have marked them for correction. He is pure. You are pure eyes than to behold evil. So when we're faced with a calamity, with a crisis in our lives, we stop and review the lowest common denominators of the faith. One thing, no matter where you go in Scripture, you look for de declarations of the character of God and the character of mankind. Always look for that. Whether you're in Old Testament, in Israel times, if you're pre-Abraham in the Bible, or if you're in the New Testament, what does it say about God and what does it say about me in that? Uh, with, excuse me, when death is staring us in the face, God is eternal. When, surround, when we're surrounded by wickedness, he is still holy. When the rats, as one writer said, when the rats keep winning the rat race, he appoints them to judgment. When it seems like all of life is sinking into the muck and the mire and the bad things we experience, we need not remain in the valley. We can set our feet on high places as we see Habakkuk pray at the end of this book. 
and we can lift our eyes and our spirits with confidence and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Habakkuk uh, comes from a root word, which means to embrace. And some have said, well, it means that his name means one who clings to God or one who is embraced by God. Either way, he has a central view and proposition of his life, and that is to follow God himself. So why would God employ a people of iniquity? And secondly, the next question in verses 14 and 15, why would God endorse a people of injustice? Look at verse 14. Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away in their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. There's injustice, and the picture is is of a, a fishing vessel that's taking in these drag nets full of fish, and the fisherman doesn't care. He's just happy he's being provided for, and the wealth of the sea is coming up. This was a picture that the people of Judah would be familiar with, the Sea of Galilee teeming with fish, or even the Mediterranean Sea, and they knew about fishing about this. So this was a picture of a fisherman who has no thought for the feelings of the fish, essentially. And so it was injustice. There are no easy answers to the problem of suffering. In fact, I would warn you to beware of easy answers. Uh, We need to focus on who and what God is. Remember in the Old Testament, Job was in the dark also. When all of his children died a violent death, he just cried out, God, why? He was perplexed also. The great theologian Charles Hodge said that if anyone thinks he has a simple solution to the problem of pain, he should hold an infant screaming with pain in his arms, and any simple solution will fly out the window, unquote. There's a lot of injustice that surrounds us, and maybe you have experienced that in your own life. I think all of us have at one point, unjustly accused, unjustly uh, slandered, whatever it may be. And so God is using these people of injustice to discipline Judah. And I recognize it's because God cares so much for his people. He loves Judah so much. And then thirdly, why would God excuse a people of idolatry? Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they, will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? There's nothing stopping them. As we saw in the first part of chapter 1, God describes them as their horses are like leopards and wolves and eagles and they just consume everything in their path as a superpower of that day and age well your and my enemy may not be a foreign nation that's threatening us at the moment but when iniquity and justice and idolatry seem to prevail we can be as disheartened and as perplexed as Habakkuk was in his day and age C.S. Lewis wrote uh, and you're probably very familiar with this quote God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. With the events of this past week, there are plenty of opportunities, and we should be praying for churches in in Minnesota and Louisiana and Dallas area uh, that they can be lights of grace and mercy of God's beautiful care to those communities that are facing that fundamentally. Again, our faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and his power. 
So when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Even though my agenda may not be fulfilled, we know that Christ is carrying out his plan. The prophet focused on the character of God here. In Jonah, uh, he disagreed with what God was doing. Remember Jonah, the reluctant prophet who ran the other way instead of going to Nineveh? Men of faith are always men who have to confront problems. Have you ever thought of that? If you're a person of faith, you will always be confronting problems because the world system is going the opposite direction of the direction you are going. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, For if you believe in God and sometimes wonder why he allows certain things to happen, you will be confronting the dilemma and the problem of facing life. But keep in mind there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Habakkuk here had some great doubts in his mind, but he was not unbelieving God. Like Habakkuk, the doubter questions God and may even debate with God, but the doubter doesn't abandon God. But unbelief is rebellion against God, a refusal to accept what he does and what he says. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. You know, all of us in... uh, the 21st century North America, are really children of the French Revolution, where reason was crowned as queen, and we are all recipients of that philosophy of life. You know, if we can't reason it through, then something must be wrong. And reason gropes in the dark for answers while faith waits for God. It doesn't mean we don't use our reason, but there is an element where we come to the point where we have to have faith waiting for God. Secondly, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, when the dilemma deepens or intensifies, Habakkuk was to anticipate something. And here he's going to watch. Look at verse 1. He makes this statement. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. He is faithful to stand, to station himself. He didn't flee to the mountains. He was watchful. And he was teachable, waiting for God to respond to him. And then verses 2 through 5, God admonishes him to write it down. Then the Lord answered me and said, in verse 2, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. And he's talking about the issue of someone's going to read this, and they're going to tell others. That's the picture here. They're going to read your declaration on the tablets or on the parchment, and they are going to tell all the others in Judah what is happening. This is how the prophet got his message out. So today, what are some takeaways from this passage? First of all, it teaches us three fundamental things about God's character. First of all, he is sovereign. Sovereignty means he is in control of all things at all places at all times. This is difficult for us to reconcile. This is grasped by faith, by faith, because uh, we think about the Dallas shootings. Now, where was God in that? And yet God is sovereign over all things. That wasn't outside of his control. That is sovereignty. He is active in the affairs of history. He uses the nations to bring about his will, whether or not those nations acknowledge him or not. This is what it means to look at the long picture, to look over history and see God's movement down through history. As we look at the conflict around the world, around our nation, even today, God is sovereign, and he is carrying out his purposes in time. Secondly, God is holy. 
He will not and cannot tolerate any sin. His eyes are too pure even to look upon the evil with any sense of acceptance. God is pure. Thirdly, God is just. He will judge all evil in the world, even those whom he has used to judge others. And we will see that as we continue on through the book of Habakkuk. By the way, we are as we move through here, we are living in a tension. Uh, because if you go to the end of the book, you know what the answer is. And I'd encourage you to read the whole book at a setting. Uh, but for our Sunday morning presentations, for our sermons here, uh, we are living in a tension. It's like e- living in Easter Saturday. We are awaiting the resurrection. We are awaiting the consummation. We are awaiting the justness of all things. And then the, the passage also teaches us three things about us. We are sinners and therefore subject to God's condemnation. We may think that we are better than others in the world, even as Israel thought they were better than Babylon, but compared to God's absolute holiness, we are all the same. Secondly, we cannot save ourselves by our works. Most people are deceived into thinking that they will go to heaven by their works, when in reality they won't. Our good works are just what you're supposed to do. They do not earn us any merit or cancel out any of our sins. In fact, any good works we do, Ephesians tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, they were prepared beforehand by Jesus Christ himself. And thirdly, the righteous will live by faith. In verse 4 of chapter 2, it tells us the righteous live by faith. It is only through faith that we can be made right with God and know eternal life rather than eternal condemnation. Many times people look at the evil in the world and think God does not care. Then they they learn that God will judge their own sin, and then they say that God is not fair, especially when they think that they themselves are better than others and somehow more deserving of salvation. But God does care, and God is fair. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that if you will put your faith in him, you can be saved today. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to Consider your eternal well-being, and it is by grace through faith that salvation is offered to you. The righteous will live by faith. Joseph Bailey, uh, many years ago, wrote just a little thin book on the whole issue of pain and suffering, particularly about death. He lost three sons, uh, some in infancy, and one in infancy and others as teenagers. But he writes this in conclusion to the book, the last thing we talk about. And I'll close with this. He writes, One Saturday morning in January, I saw the mail truck at our mailbox up the road. Without thinking except that I wanted to get the mail, I ran out of the house and up the road in my shirt sleeve. It was bitterly cold. The temperature was below zero. There was a brisk wind from the north, and the ground was covered with more than a foot of snow. I opened the mailbox, pulled out the mail, and was about ready to make a dash back for the house when I saw that on the bottom underneath all the letters was a Burpee seed catalog. On the front of it were photos of bright zinnias. I turned it over and on the back were photos of huge tomatoes. For a few moments, I was oblivious to the cold and I was delivered from it. I leafed through the catalog and thought I could taste corn and cucumbers. I smelled the roses. I saw freshly plowed earth, smelled it, let it run through my fingers. And for those brief moments, I was living in the springtime and summer, winter was past. When I got home and the door was closed behind me and I was getting warm again, I thought of my moments at the mailbox were like our experiences as Christians. We feel the cold along with all those who do not share our hope. 
the biting wind penetrates us as it does everyone. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the writer from the 1920s who coined the phrase the Jazz Age, spoke of the end that was, quote, desolate and unkind to turn the calendar at June and find December on the next leaf, unquote. We have this same desolate feeling, many of us. But in our cold times, we have a seed catalog. We open it and smelled the promised spring, eternal spring, and the first fruits that settles our hope is Jesus Christ, who was raised from the death and from the cold earth to glory eternal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning again. Thank you for Habakkuk again. For